but good day. This is our CISO live event where our panel of experts are here to answer your questions without any sales pitches. As Cybersecurity Director for Stealth Group, I want to introduce myself. I'm Todd Zelenka, your host, your MC, your facilitator. So welcome to CISO Live. All right. So the first question that we had that actually came in prior uh, as we were announcing and, and soliciting questions from the audience, what is the difference between compliance and security risks, since that's the theme of our series? Well, let me uh, give it a go on that one. So compliance really is a snapshot. It's, um, it's a requirement that um, a lot of industries have to do, and uh, same for healthcare, HIPAA, high trust, you basically have to meet certain requirements. It's compliance. Do you meet those requirements at that given point in time? So usually done internally or externally by external auditors, but that means just you met the requirements to be compliant. Security, on the other hand, is that you actually are secure that you're doing what needs to be done. So monitoring logs, making sure users log in, log out, um, maintaining your firewalls, maintaining your system, uh, making sure the, the users and uh, your staff is, is educated, is trained. So that is a, is a continuous thing. Security is continuous 24-7. Compliance is a snapshot to give you an overview, have you done the right thing over the last year or two that you need to be compliant in? That's, that's how I see it. Yeah, and, and I'd also add compliance is more of a uh, checklist mentality. So if these 20 things are done, you're compliant. Um, HIPAA, if you've ever had the fortune or misfortune of reading the HIPAA actual regulations, it starts off with risk. You know, understand what's going on in your environment, understand where your issues are and deal with them. So it, it's risk management. It's, it's understanding the right level of security for your organization and building processes to get there. Um, I, I think the biggest, biggest um, a story that can tell you the difference is, is Target, the Target breach with Fazio. Uh, Fazio was the HVAC company, which actually led to the, to the giant Target breach. It was about five years ago. Target was PCI compliant. Their checkboxes were all done. However, they evidently needed a few more checkboxes. So, so they, they've done everything at the time to be PCI compliant, but there still was a gap. To Dasha's point, if you look at a risk mentality, you know, what, what broader scope do we need to deal with? Um, a compliance list is never going to be enough to verify that your security is secure enough um, to meet your expectations. And, and that really is the difference, is, is a prescriptive checklist given to you, as opposed to you, know, you making sure your security program meets uh, the expectations of your organization. So that, that gets me to your question then. So do you think, and especially in HIPAA being um, on the risk side, do you think for the, for the other industries, not having a risk-based approach, but more of a compliance check like PCI for the financial sector, um, that that is giving the false sense of security or false sense of what companies actually need to do? Because um, especially if you, the way you mentioned it, risk-based, it is... A, it's you're looking at where you are, your company or your your healthcare system, your hospital, your your doctor's office, and you actually look at it. What do I need to do the way I do business, the technology that I do, the people that I do, and that's unique across the board. So does that uh, would you then say, um, 
yeah, that security in general is maybe not necessarily the best approach. It should be risk-based and not compliance. So maybe compliance at the bottom, risk in the middle, uh, sorry, security in the middle and risk at the top or a combination of all of them. This is Dan Bowden. I'll, I'll chime in a little bit. I've been a CISO in healthcare for a long time now and HIPAA is sort of a, a, a bad compliance reference in my opinion there is no there's no governing body who circles around where you can go to there's no line you can go get in and go to health and human services and get your hipaa compliant check mark they um they've talked for a long time about doing proactive audits and going out and making these declarations uh to health systems recovered and hipaa covered entities and it's never happened. And so the the only time, um, speaking for myself, I've been I've been declared HIPAA compliant. And there was a caveat. It was voluntarily you uh, HIP voluntarily compliant. And both times came immediately in the wake of a reported security incident, where then, as a result of the incident, there was an investigation. After they looked at us. Um, they said, okay, we find you voluntarily compliant. So there, it's, it's a tough one, but the important thing is with HIPAA, HIPAA security rule number one says, thou shalt do you know, an assessment of all the you know, threats to the confidentiality, integrity, availability of, you guys know the rest, or can guess the rest. And so that's the most important thing. So it is being able to look at the HIPAA security rules and people get kind of hung up because some of the rules are required and some are addressable and addressable doesn't mean optional so what you really need to do is show you're looking at all the different risk vectors and then explaining your logic in what you chose to do and then the hipaa security rules end up kind of being addressed through different nist controls um, where pci it, it is it, you got the checklist right of what you've got to do and you've got to nail it down and to the point about compliance there are some things that you can you can check a box to be compliant for but you may not be secure um and, uh, and that's a tough thing with pci compliance in the past i've had a um a uh, a revenue generating website did a pen test against it turned out it was subject to a denial of service attack or vulnerable to denial of service and my question to the tester was when it goes down does it go down hard meaning it's closed you can't get access to data he said yes. So in terms of compliance, I consider that no issue. Now it's not secure because it affects the availability of the service, but the data is protected. So there's no confidentiality risk. And so when I went to my the guy doing my report on compliance, I said, "Hey, no, no, no data is exposed," and he took it. Right now, I still let the the business owner know they may want to address that. So that's the the conundrum you're in. To Dosh's point is. Um, it's sort of doing things right versus doing the right thing. And, you know, security is the latter, my take on it. Wow. Oh, and, and the advantage with compliance is compliance, uh, good and bad, they're, they're both aspects. Compliance is good for a company that doesn't have uh, the security leadership uh, strategy and the people to kind of help them manage the risk. So those that cannot deal with cyber as a business risk, who can't think through those processes, Compliance is good because then you have the 200 checkboxes and you're done. 
doesn't necessarily mean you're secured up, but at least you can complete that, that, that cycle of review. Um, most healthcare companies, at least the smaller ones, don't have someone to help them through the risk concepts. Um, I, I, I've got a small client I'm working with and, and they needed their risk assessment. Uh, even the risk assessment itself is, is, is arduous and, and you really need specialists to do it right. Uh, for the small company, I use Health and Human Services tool. They have a risk assessment tool that HHS provides. And I pulled it out and I looked at it and I ran through it and it produced 400 pages of gobbledygook that meant really nothing to me. You know, I, I've got 20 years experience in healthcare cybersecurity. I didn't know what it was spitting out, but I did a risk assessment with the HHS tool. Um, so you need the right skill sets really to play in the risk space as opposed to the compliance space. Compliance is easier to do. doesn't necessarily mean more secure though. Well, and that, that actually, uh, with, with Dan's explanation of HIPAA, leads to one of the other, one of our questions, because um, it says, what does HIPAA and high trust address as far as, or how do they address risk? Uh, Dan's elaborated on HIPAA quite well for us. What about high trust? Or is that a consideration? Um, high trust is interesting, and it's picking up more steam on the healthcare provider space, it started more in terms of the health care payers, the insurance companies, and they're in effect a vendor to many. So maybe your employer, if you work for a company and you're going to go to Aetna or Cigna or someone, and so you may want a framework, and that's what they like TITRUST for is it had the checklist box, we do all these things. Um, and so that was, uh, it, rather than the and the, the payers liked it because rather than getting a hundred different clients sending a hundred different unique questionnaires to respond to, they like giving you their high trust, their SOC 2 type 2 to show, hey, we, we've got a handle on things. And so I think in terms of you know, my view anyway, um, I think that with, with high trust, it's a, uh, a, a quick way to, to demonstrate compliance with a framework. The problem with high trust is if you're on the asking end about compliance, you need to understand how high trust works. The scope is variable. So someone can declare a particular set of scope and say, we're high trust compliant. And you need to ask, what was the scope? Um, was it applicable to all the information systems which support my business relationship with you? And then how in depth was it? And there are several domains. And so my, uh, I like the, in some ways, the utility of high trust in terms of a uniformity of getting questions answered. The problem is um, it's, um, it is somewhat variable in what companies can afford to get assessed and certified on. It's just like PCI, all of these things to get that certification, they cost money. And any, any good business-minded uh, company is going to spend the least amount at the last possible minute to get those compliance type certifications. So it's important to know what you're asking about. Yeah, I'm actually helping one of my clients through high trust right now and, 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 and Dan's spot on. The, the, the value it brings is that relationship between the, uh, basically the covered entity, generally a healthcare organization and the vendors. Healthcare organizations have hundreds of vendors they deal with. They're, they're sharing data and resources with all sorts of people. The healthcare provider has to have some sort of level of comfort that their vendors are being secure. So to Dan was saying, it used to be spreadsheets and third-party risk assessments, which was, was, was a complete hassle on, on both sides of the fence. Um, high trust really helps fill that gap um, in that it really translates HIPAA closer to a compliance concept. 
So you can tell high trust that I'm a HIPAA organization. I want to be NIST compliant. Um, I don't know, maybe I've got PCI concerns. And, and high trust really takes that collection of obligations and converts it in more or less a compliance framework for you. So these are the things you have to accomplish. Um, so it's great in that aspect, but from the vendor's point of view, the person getting the assessment, it is not easy. It's, 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 it's big. Um, again, you really, you need specialists to help you through high trust. High trust is very difficult to do, but it really gives us that, that HIPAA stamp we're looking for. Um, so it, it's, it's not cheap, but it's not easy, but um, it, it does fill a gap. I, I'm not sure it's the best way to fill a gap, but, but it does give us some um, measurable and demonstrable uh, sense of security when, when big guys are, are dealing with, with their third parties. So I've, I've got a note to that, and I, I, I want to ask a question here as well. Uh, so I don't know if you all read, but uh, there was still in June the announcement that High Trust version 9.4 um, of the High Trust CSF is incorporated in the DOD CMMC approach, um, which also includes um, the uh, NIST 800 uh, 71 and then um, pretty much getting getting a little bit more aligned with the other standards what uh, so I think that's a good thing because then we're suddenly starting to speak the same language we're starting to speak the same standards or the same framework at least close enough I think that is a good approach but um, taking CMMC and what you said Terry is getting that certification it's um, you mentioned it at the beginning, there is, um, there is not really an authority out there that will investigate or find, I mean, there is, but if you take a look at the statistics of how many complaints there were, how many were investigated, and then eventually, I think 116 million uh, were the fines, which is, you know, over the last, I think the statistics were from 15 years, over the last 15 years, it's not really a lot. So what is, I mean, I don't really see why healthcare or doc, especially small businesses, doctors, the, the small, you know, the small clinics that don't have the money that's still dealing with a quite, a quite large volume of data, they don't have any incentive to become HIPAA certified and uh, or get any third party in there they're kind of relying on their here's my software from a vendor that i bought and um, everything else i have on paper we scan it in it's somewhere in the cloud or it's local i hope i'm good that's that's kind of the mentality i'm seeing a lot and which is a little bit i would say kind of frustrating because it does not protect the the individuals and uh, at the same time i think it gives a wrong perception to to the doctors and the and the business owners where the risk is. I, I agree. It goes back to that concept of cyber as a business risk. And, and that's the conversations I like to have. Big companies that uh, Dan's organization probably has some sort of enterprise risk committee. They're used to dealing with big concepts like that. Small provider, um, startups that I'm dealing with, entrepreneurs, small and mid-sized companies, they generally don't get that concept. And um, and I've been using the the, uh, the, the label of uh, risk-savvy business owner. If you have a risk-savvy business owner understands some of those concepts, it's, it's an easier um, conversation to have, talk about cybersecurity and HIPAA and, and everything else. But a lot of small companies just don't get it. That, that, that concept of risk is completely foreign to them. And and um, you know, what's they're looking at the downside. Am I going to get fined? Well, there's really not a lot of HIPAA fines. 
you know, is, is GDPR may or may not affect them. So um, for those non-risk savvy business owners, it really comes down to uh, what's my motivation to get there. And that's a hard sell. The motivation, the motivations are, are starting to mature. Cyber, cyber insurance gets cheaper when you have a good security program. You know, maybe you can sell it as a differentiator. Uh, maybe you're third parties. Maybe you're a, a partner with Dan's organization and Dan says, you got to show me you're secure. So there's more and more drivers that are starting to push these small clinics and these small organizations to be secure minded, but, it, but it, 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 that motivation has to keep growing. Well, and that, that brings up a great point and, and leads to the very next question. Uh, uh, Jim had uh, posed, Jim, I know you're good at answer, asking questions. So I'm gonna let you ask your own question, brother. That was a great lead in right there, uh, um, uh, Terry. So, you know, does being sued not motivate them at all. Uh, I mean, right, they may not get a fine, uh, you know, from, from, from a governing body, uh, but does the risk of being sued, um, and, and how well does being compliant hold up in court in terms of limiting one's liability? Um, and it's kind of a leading question, because on the physical security side, you guys may be aware of a, a thing called the Safety Act, um, where, um, you know, the Department of Homeland Security you know, has worked with companies uh, to certify um, certain security programs to say, in the event of an act of terror, if you're certified, we're going to put a cap on liability. And this is post 9-11 kind of thing um, because of how many people did get sued after 9-11. There's no governing body like that, I think, in this, in this space, I think, as you alluded to earlier. But um, is anybody looking at that kind of thing as well to maybe to help stave off some of the, the liabilities that people may have. And now it's, it's the best insurance you could have if you are certified, there's your motivation kind of thing. So uh, um, I guess a lot of it goes around legal challenge. So I'll, I'll leave it there. What, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe experiences. Daniel, um, on that one? Relative, yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot. It's so a relative to HIPAA. It's an interesting question, right? I think, you know, three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, there was some discussion or concern about uh, patients or health plan members bringing a uh, class action lawsuit. And there, there were a few, uh, you know, back in that, that three, four, five year time frame. Um, but there haven't been as many now relative to HIPAA. And I think it's, um, it's because not many health systems are at the health system level. I get lots of vendors who tell me their solution, solutions HIPAA compliant. Um, but, but in terms of the people with the data who have the breaches, um, none of us walk around saying, you know, claiming to be compliant because we've never actually had Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights come in and do a proactive audit and go through the list and say that we are. And so the only, the, I mean, meaningful court cases have been those instances where someone had a breach, a health system had a breach. Um, and then they wanted maybe to fight with the government, fight OCR on the settlement and say, no, nah, you know what, we don't think you're right. Let's go to court. And there have only been two or three cases. If you go to the on, the, on HIPAA, if you go to Health and Human Services OCR settlement webpage, 99% um, of the time the covered entity chooses to settle with OCR. There have only been two or three cases where the covered entity chose to go to court. I think the most recent one was MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center, uh, maybe three years ago, and they they took they tried to run the uh, on the pretense that the um, the data in question wasn't being. I think this you can go read more de more detail about it. 
but it was basically research data. We weren't doing billing. It wasn't um, you know, of that nature. So HIPAA doesn't apply, and they um, they lost uh, that that ruling. So it's it, HIPAA. HIPAA is a tough one. All of these, you know, in terms of court cases, it's hard to get really good um, precedent and backed up data to know what is your actual risk in terms of litigation. I think it's still up in the air um, in terms of what that is. And so I think the conversation ends up being more along the lines of, you know, and I think, you know, you have some of these where they just immediately try to settle. The really big breaches, you know, that we've seen recently with Equifax or others, it's, uh, they're, they're almost trying, in terms of what they offer the consumer, almost trying to settle the case before the case starts, right? So already rolling out, um, you know, credit bureau monitoring, things like that. So it's, it's tough and, and helps really not so much court. Yeah. yeah. But on the retail finance, I think there, there are more tangible examples, but man, right. it seems like the mileage varies. Um, so every the time. answer there is it's not really a motivator yet because I don't think that you have enough precedent. Yeah. It's all, you know, medical right. office, like that. You're not making a case. Um, but I would add, if you go through yeah. actually re re really yeah. articulate the fines associated with HIPAA, the, the fines are bigger when you have, you know, willful disregard, those sorts of concepts. If yeah. OCR comes in and, and they give you an action plan because of some kind of complaint or something, if you show the due diligence and the best practice, you get off a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, but again, there, are, there yeah. aren't a lot of those. So if you, again, if you're a no, small business owner and you got to figure out where yeah. you spend your limited resources, is it this space or that space? That, that, that's a tough conversation, which again, I always bring it back to business, business, business. Cyber is a business issue. Um, we had a big issue in, in, in Charlotte here, mm. actually a, a healthcare example, um, those nursing homes that were knocked out last year because their shared MSP went down. You guys recall that story is about a hundred nursing homes mm. up North were knocked offline because their shared nursing home practice management tools knocked offline. Um, availability, that, that's a business risk. What do you do business owner if your stuff's not available? Um, mm. and, and those, that all plays into HIPAA because HIPAA talks about availability, even though that's really not mentioned often, um, building a good security plan make, makes you a more resilient business. And I think those are the conversations we need to have because, uh, HIPAA fines don't happen that often. Lawsuits don't happen often. Um, really it's, we have a diligence to protect our business and make sure we can execute upon our mission statement. Um, availability is a great conversation probably much more realistic and applicable and relatable than a fine. So in the, la in the last years, um, and especially now with COVID, we've seen a lot of uh, news in the, in the press about hospitals being, uh, getting ransomware, getting hacked, uh, data stolen, and just even systems being hijacked, literally, and asking for money. And a lot of those had impact on patients. Those were live systems. They were not just back-end administrative financial, financial systems. So do you think all this that suddenly, or knowing that the healthcare industry is not necessarily up to speed or does not have the motivator to be secure or compliant or both, that now that um, a lot more there's a lot more risk and the hackers actually go against it and use those as, as easy victims to gain money, to get access to data. And this should be a motivation enough for the hospitals or for the doctors to kind of jump on it and start understanding that this is a business risk. It's not a HIPAA compliancy thing. This is 
for them to stay in business, maintain in business, and not necessarily about fines, but about ransomware, about who else can get my money versus just the government fining me. This is Dan. I don't mean to keep jumping in. I'm looking for another healthcare besides Terry. Me, me and Terry seem to be playing tennis here. Um, <laughs> healthcare questions. But, you know, it's interesting. I think we've in, in healthcare, and you, Dasha has a good point. We've sort of had the haves and have nots on getting a good cybersecurity program in place. And, you know, as a patient, I would tell someone, hey, if you're, if you're seeing one of the mainstream health systems uh, in your state, you know, one of those has multiple hospitals, multiple practice locations. They're probably in the haves category. Now, that doesn't mean they won't have a problem because we, we can see every day cybersecurity is hard for everybody, right? Even big tech companies, it's hard when, uh, when they're being challenged. The, um, but I do think, Dasha's, to Josh's point, the, the, a lot of smaller independent practices, this is still very difficult for them. And if you, you go look, you'll find some of these smaller practices, a single office, or maybe just a handful of offices in a, in a small region. There are some that have had a ransomware event and uh, just closed. Just, just straight up closed the door, said, okay, well, um, I'm retiring. And uh, that, was, that was the end of the practice. And so it's, it's tough. And you ask yourself as a I think to my own man, if I was one of one of his patients, I would have so many questions. Um, but uh, it, it's difficult. The so way healthcare, we're still coming around the, the bend on it. There are some really good resources. As, as Terry mentioned, it, the key thing is finding good help and resources. And and uh, the Health Sector Coordinating Council has uh, is kind of one of those. It's tied into Homeland Security, um, all other uh, organizations that help with. Uh, critical um, infrastructure sectors, uh, cyber defense, and healthcare is one of those sectors. There's there's more and more good information. If you're aware of a health system that needs assistance, you can go out to that health sector coordinating council for cybersecurity. Great resources. To Terry's point about the checklist, we I was one of the kind of the contributing authors to that. We tried to bake it down to, hey, here's the the how-to book, um, and then other resources people could call. But it's it's an on it's a journey um, uh, with with healthcare. And we're still we're still climbing that hill. And and, and I and I appreciate your work, Dan. Those checklists add a lot of value. They're they're not a waste of time. Um, but to to Dasha's point, they're not everything. It's for small companies that really don't have the guidance, checklists are a great tool, and maybe it'll get you eighty percent of where you need to go. Um, we do add one thing back to what Dasha said earlier on, though, is, is what are the external motivators that are going to get us to the point where security is really important? Um, I'll tell you one case that's going to happen eventually is ransomware is going to lock down a Da Vinci surgical device. You know, one of those modalities is going to get knocked out by ransomware and someone's going to die. There's going to be some, uh, some actual outcome where a patient is injured or killed because of this. Then all heck's going to break loose then Congress is going to be all over this and they're going to come with a big hammer and say, thou shall do this and thou shall do that. Um, that's really what's going to motivate us. Unfortunately, some kind of big uh, adverse effect where someone gets hurt or killed. And, and that's a good point because um, right now, I'm, I mean, it's not just now, but in the last few years, technology is becoming more and more advanced. 
I mean, you today you got pacemakers that are connected to your Bluetooth device that you can monitor. You have all of this. So I'm talking here IoT, and there is more and more devices that I see that are coming up in even not just the hospitals, but even in in smaller, you know, local clinics that are starting to use those devices. And that is a, I, I see that as a big risk, um, especially having done penetration tests network in the healthcare industry. It's, there's around IoT devices, there is not really a secure infrastructure framework that can be built into this. So just looking at that, and that goes to your point, do we really need to have human life as, you know, as, as the, the risk as the risk thank you as the risk before we start making or before the industry uh, realizes that how bad this can really be yeah and i and, and i think that really comes into again being in when i was in dan's uh, shoes before uh he's dealing with a lot of customers a lot of clients a lot of vendors if if his organization wants to start using a certain pacemaker or insulin pump what is his organization's obligation to make sure that's secure. That is really where he would leverage compliance. So perhaps his third party, his insulin pump maker is gonna say, hey, we've been certified by XYZ, by high trust, whatever it may be. Because there's no way uh, as a CISO, you're gonna validate the security of all your partners and all the tools, it's just impossible. But that's one case where I think compliance would be a value to be able to get a stamp to say, yep, we've had the right people look at it, uh, we understand the scope to Dan's point as well. Um, it, it, I think that's where there'd be some value for receiving this third-party assessment uh, of compliance. That, that would definitely be a value to me as a CISO. I think uh, Coover's got kind of a question that expands on what you're talking about. Coover? Yeah, thank you, Todd. I was going to ask, you know, in general, I, from what you're describing, Tasha, you were talking about, uh, you know, IoT and stuff and hardware specific, um, kind of a little bit more general and areas that cover a variety of different things, you know, IoT devices, cloud, supply chain, et cetera. Um, can you recommend or suggest any specific policies that you can identify that reflect an organization's prioritization of cybersecurity? Um, I, Dan, I, uh, sorry, Don, I think you had mentioned an organization and then that had available checklists. I'm sorry, I missed the name of the organization. I think you mentioned, um, Terry mentioned that the um, HHS, HHS checklist that you can download. I think that's what, that's what you mean. Okay. There, there is the checklist. Um, now, as far as a cookie cutter, where is the risk? Where, where does a company need to go? I don't think there is a cookie cutter approach there. Um, there is always the baseline security and that applies not just the healthcare industry, but everywhere is you need to meet the basic security requirements from, and one thing that I've seen a lot also in the healthcare industry is flat network. Um, having certain things segmented out as in what is, what are the critical assets? Uh, for example, um, a billing system, yes, it's critical. Yes, it's important. Is it as critical as a device that saves life as a um, ventilator or a pump or something like that? Um, in a different, it's a different risk. So separating those assets into the different security zones and network segments and separating them out and making them secure accordingly. I think that's the biggest key. And what I've seen, at least the, 
the healthcare hospitals that uh, I've been audited or I've audited is you, you have a relatively flat network, you start growing, you acquire other businesses or you partner with other healthcare industries. And then suddenly you've got this huge network across US or several states. And it's, you don't have the overview really and you do not have the critical assets, especially the life-saving assets, completely separated out and secured as you should. And in that case, it, it does not really matter how much that technology is that was certified and is high trust compliant and HIPAA and has encryption. Um, there's always going to be some kind of risk to it. Always. Nothing is hundred percent perfect. So if you, even if it's certified and you still have it on a flat network, you're still going to have some risk. If you separate it out into a network segment, you're going to, that risk is going to be significantly less. It's still going to be there. So I think this kind of the overarching strategy, not just the best tools, the processes, but also in the architecture. Where is the critical, where are the critical assets that you have as a business? And that criticality mm. is different from business to business. And I think that's the first question to ask, which is what Terry mentioned at the beginning. I, I think Dasha gave the great, and I'll, I'll marry up an answer to what she, she proposed to James's latest question here. So, so Dasha described the situation very well from a technical standpoint. And in terms of that, you know, what elements are critical in a risk assessment for healthcare sector, you, you first start with the big policy statement that says, hey, we're, we're a covered entity, we're subject to HIPAA, we process credit cards, we're, we're subject to PCI, we have other contractual obligations that are driven by blah, blah, blah. And then within that, you start saying, okay, well, if you look at all those requirements, what are all the applicable frameworks that might be NIST, something else? And you start boiling those into policies, standards, and then sometimes procedures. But what you do is you take what Dasha said and you take those different information systems and you start doing an inherent risk assessment of those. Okay, well, how many how many records? How are they accessed? Do we do we end up on the news tonight? You know, kind of that. If it's you're going to be on the news tonight because that gets breached, that's a high high risk one. And so the the risk assessment for those systems is going to be a thicker book, so to speak, and you're going to need to update it more consistently. So that's the way my team breaks it down. Is we have 30 ish of those. If something goes bad on this, we're on the news tonight, uh, information systems. And so we're, those are getting a constant hover of what are we doing? You know, every two week corrective action plan review and update on any gaps. And then the mediums and lows, it's more of a every six month annual review. But you need to, to, to Dasha's point, I, all those, those uh, policies and standards had a control framework behind them. And I'm comparing that control framework to the design that Dasha um, described. So if I'm in a flat network that has different problems, I'm not doing default deny, I don't do, you know, um, maybe I don't have 2FA, things like that, all of those. Now I'm, I'm developing a risk assessment where I can say, I, I think I should be here, but I'm only here, here's my corrective action plan. And that's important work to show in terms of in, back in HIPAA, those those penalty tiers are, are determined on levels of gap or negligence. And so if I'm not showing any work or I'm showing I've had this big high 
finding for five years I've never addressed, and then one day I get beat, I might be declared willfully negligent. But if I've shown I've been making progress, there were some circumstances that, you know, a normal person wouldn't have guessed, then, okay, you, you, uh, you, you, there was a mistake or there was some other factor. But, but there's two, you know, Dasha did a great job describing the technical issues. And then you've got to bring your administrative part of your program together with that and then manage it. And it's, it's hard. That's why the healthcare problem, you know, we don't have a, uh, we, we've been challenged for a lot of really good technical people. And then cybersecurity people are esoteric within that. And the people who have the willingness to do these risk assessments to the level they need to be done is a, another um, kind of degree of challenge. I so, think the other challenge to that, and you kind of touched on that, is the whole administrative part. It's a cultural change in, that you have to bring to the table. And it starts really at the executive level, which kind of goes back to what is the appetite really? What is the motivation for the executives to actually get onto this? So you've got the cybersecurity and compliance people pushing from the bottom. The top does not really have the motivation yet. Uh, and then there's the third factor, the um, us as the individuals that actually leave our personal information and our lives with the healthcare industry. So, you know, we as the individuals are requiring you know, our data be secure, that everything works when we need it, that everything is available when it's needed and that they're gonna save our lives. And, but it, it has to come and it's across the board, security and compliance has to come from the top. And the cultural change, I think to your point, Dan, it's, that's the biggest thing is getting the board, getting the employees, getting everybody on board to push in the right direction. Yeah, and to Dasha's point, they don't want to have, leadership doesn't want to have a breach any more than you do as the CISO. And one of my favorite, you know, back in my, my first CISO jobs, the, the, the head of finance, one of my favorite conversations, I walked through all of this, you know, the, the likelihood of having a breach versus the challenge of being compliant. And at the end, he figured out no one, there's really nothing I was ever going to do to earn the HIPAA compliant Stamp. There was nowhere to go to get that. But he, he figured out through the discussion, he said, so you're telling me if we never have a breach, no one's going to check if we're compliant. I said, that's true. And he said, okay, do you have the list of things that are most likely to cause a breach in order? I said, yes, I do. He said, okay, how much is the first one? And, um, and that was where we went and uh, had a great relationship. And, uh, and then once we got that, okay, how much is the next one? And we, that was the, the path he wanted to go. But we boiled it down to where he could, he wanted to do something about it. I just needed to boil it into the chunks that he, uh, he knew, knew what he could shoot at first for me. And that culture among leadership is hard to get done too. That, that's gotta be an, an intentional process as a CISO. Um, one great presentation once every two years is not gonna change your culture. Um, regular touch points with leadership. I, I make a point that with my executive group, um, every month I'll send them just a two-sentence blurb on the latest article, um, um, whether it's a breach that happened down the street, uh, whether it's a technical thing, but they, they, they need to slowly and, and regularly hear these concepts. Again, cyber is a business issue. It's going to impact our mission, Th those sorts of things. You got to slow trickle that uh, to help build up that support leadership level. I've got yeah, a great follow-up question to what you just said, uh, 
Secretary. Um, says, how can I arm my compliance and privacy professionals with specific data that informs decision-making? So you touched on it. I just wanted you to expand on it, if you Well, um, I, don't, I don't consider myself having to inform those people necessarily. I need to partner with them. So it's, it's a lot of shared information going to go back and forth. They're going to tell me things. I'll tell them things. And we're going to work together as a team. Um, I generally brand my security uh, group as, as part of data protection. So not necessarily cybersecurity program, we have a data protection program. That includes privacy, that includes uh, compliance, that includes security. Uh, the pieces all have to work together. You can have the best security program in the world, but if you have no privacy, um, it all falls apart. Conversely, if you have privacy but no security, it falls apart. The, the two really play part and parcel with each other. Um, and then compliance, Compliance can be very useful. Compliance and even kind of the, the, the close peer to compliance is the audit, your auditors. Um, as a CISO, become best friends with your, with your auditors. Um, use them to, to, to highlight issues you're ha having trouble with. Because um, your auditors are really the ones who are going to tell you, are you doing what you think you're doing? Um, so, so build your policies and your programs to get where you need to go, and then your auditors are going to leverage. So really, all, all, all those pieces all play together. Um, they, they should all be best friends. You should be going out and having a uh, apple teeny with them once a month and, and make sure you guys are all synced up. 100% agree. And to add to that, especially auditors, doesn't matter if it's internal or external. As a CISO, our challenge is always to get the buy-in and the budget and the, you know, putting the risk in dollars on the table to the executive team and showing, hey, we need to get this done. So if you're good friends with the auditors, you can ask them to highlight what really is the risk. And that might help you to get the budget and get the message across from the, from, uh, for the executives. Because it's not just your opinion suddenly, but it's either the internal team, internal audit team, or the external that pretty much will validate, here's what we really need. So yeah, 100% agree with Terry on that. And I think that last sentence, uh, you talked about what's your opinion of the biggest risks. <clears throat> I, I would suggest you, you need to focus on, um, on metrics. So again, your auditors can help you, compliance can help you. Uh, have you reviewed the Verizon data breach report with leadership? What actually are the most likely sorts of attacks? Have you reviewed FBI has cyber crime statistics every year? Great conversation in that space. So. Um, I, I would also suggest due diligence to actually get those numbers. What are the biggest, biggest risks? Again, Verizon, FBI, a lot of insurance companies now are producing statistics on the actual breaches and what it's causing people. Leverage those numbers so it's not uh, Terry thinks this or, or, or Dan thinks that. It's here is your number one crime, uh, business email compromise. FBI the past two years said business email compromise, your number one risk. You're really not going to buy enough technology to solve that problem. Uh, we, we touched a little bit on process and people. People process technology is part of your security program. Uh, business email compromise is not going to get fixed by buying another firewall. You, you got to get your processes in place. Maybe your auditors help. Um, so a, again, I, back to the culture, statistics, uh, they, those sorts of things resonate with leadership. Fantastic. And, and I, I think that resonates. Um, I promise no sales pitches. Um, but one of the one of the aspects that we always talk about is that it's not just tools, it's people, processes, and tools that you have to look at. So that it's a holistic picture. And and I appreciate your comments on that, Terry. Um, we're we're getting close, so I'm trying to trying to get through all these questions. 
Um, what are the key initiatives to have an effective HIPAA risk assessment with the kind of the do's and don'ts? And I'm going to combine that with, because um, Dasha and y'all had mentioned the NIST uh, 171 uh, requirements kind of play into as a standard. So I think those two are, are a good question to develop a little bit more. I think as a baseline for any risk assessment is you have to know what your call it golden nuggets or critical assets are. Be fully aware and understand what are you protecting? What is critical for your business and focus on that. You might have priority ones, you might have priority twos, priority threes, but in order to have a proper risk management and security plan, you need to know what it is that you need to protect. That's, that's the, basic first um, and then you have to and, and one thing I've, oh, I've noticed I've been involved in many incident response globally also several in the healthcare industry and um, it comes down to basic security things passwords user access control uh, those things are defined in NIST that's kind of the baseline security that I would say uh, it, if you put that in place and have that as a baseline, you've covered, you're covering a lot of areas there. And from there, you know what your critical assets are and then try to put a defense or security in, in layers or defense and security. What is it again? Defense in depth. Defense, thank you. <laughs> defense in depth. So that's how you can then really protect assets, but at least you've got the baseline across, across everything that you have using NIST, for example, or using CIS. I, I prefer NIST to be honest. Um, and then from there, you can just go on to what really, what you really need to protect and focus your money and your effort and your resources on those criticals versus across the entire enterprise. Because a lot of us are struggling with, we don't have the know-how, we don't have the budget, we don't have the people. And if you really pinpoint it down to what it is that really is critical, you can be efficient. You can be, be really make a, you can make a really big, big impression there and make a big change. And uh, kind of piggybacking on the NIST, because uh, I know in the Department of Defense, CMMC is this huge topic for any of the vendors of the U.S. government. And it's combining a lot of uh, the regulations to give them some compliance that then addresses cybersecurity is, uh, you know, uh, Jim made the comment, no one wants to be that company whose breach results in legislation or regulation, but most won't act until it's regulated. Is more strict cybersecurity regulation needed in the healthcare industry? <laughs> I, I think I see smiles. <laughs> I, I think HIPAA, it is what it is, and I, and I think it, it's good enough for the big companies be, and small companies because it's risk-based. You, you, don't, you don't need to be Fort Knox. You, you need to be good enough. You need to consider what, where you need to be. What, what's secure enough? Do you understand that? And are you hitting that level? That, that's really how HIPAA is based. So I, I'm okay with the way HIPAA is laid out. It allows, you know, Dan's at a big company. They, they're going to do a lot more than, than a small practice. They're going to do a lot more than perhaps a, a business partner in, in the space. I don't know that more regulations are going to help. Um, I do like uh, a stamp. Um, again, if, if, if when I was running big hospitals as a CISO, 
Um, I had hundreds of companies I dealt with and, and, and how can I verify they're securely managing my data? I don't know. Uh, and, and I got on the calls with them and they say, well, we encrypt. Well, do you encrypt everything? <laughs> how well do you encrypt it? Do you have any passwords or those? Them listing six things they do to protect my data makes me feel no more comfortable than when we start a stamp. If I have someone come in and say, hey, um, whether it's high trust, I hear the insurance companies are looking at, the, the insurance companies were talking about being the ones to actually give us kind of a good seal stamp for organizations in the cyberspace. Uh, but that third party risk is really difficult to, to deal with. And frankly, I think that's one of the big problems someone has to fix. Um, this one's a tough one. I'm on a, a public policy committee and, and we actually, you know, different uh, Senate and House uh, committees will send us draft legislation to review. And we do, we, we ha are always happy to review it and provide input on it. And I'll give a, a hyperbolic example on one end of the continuum. Um, when someone robs a bank, who's at fault? And uh, who broke the law? Now, the conundrum we're in, in cybersecurity, is um, someone chose to break laws that are in place. There are all kinds of laws about computer usage and hacking and unauthorized access of other people's property, even if it's electronic. Um, and, uh, and so there, there are laws already being broken, um, but we doing what we do and acting the way we act, we want to create more laws. Now we can um, increase the legislation and, and start sending people in these companies, the CISO or the CEO or someone to jail um, if this happens. Um, and I think that, not that I'm, I'm definitely not advocating that because I'm, I'm a CISO, I, I don't wanna go to jail, um, but I think you've got to ask yourself the question uh, at the end of the day, as a consumer, when does it become a problem for the consumer? Because I think all of us as CISOs, if we really sat down and said, okay, I'm going to make something essentially breach proof, I bet we could. However, I bet consumers will be much less likely to want to do business with us. I bet the people who work in our companies will be less happy about the working circumstances there. So there, there are always trade-offs. And um, any new apps, new, new everything, all this new tech that consumers, all of us want, increase the threat surface. New apps, new interfaces with other apps is more APIs, more, um, and you, you have to open things up in order to do the kind of um, global productivity and efficiency people demand. And so there's, uh, well, where is the right place? I don't know. Um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of us who've been CISOs a long time have these discussions amongst ourselves of do I need to have personal uh, E&O insurance in the future? Um, will, my, will my employer, will I work for an employer in the future who requires that? And, um, and so it, it's tough, but do I think that we could use more legislation? Possibly, yes. Do I think it's gonna solve the problem today? No, I don't. I don't think it's gonna be a material improvement by, through more legislation. Okay, that but we're always happy to make more. Uh, I find that interesting you use the bank as an example. That's the reason that 
I, I brought the question up. I said, you know, I don't think anybody was doing what Dodd-Frank was telling people to do before Dodd-Frank. Um, but I think the one thing you got out of that legislation, the banks were doing things a bit more consistently. And to Terry's point, there was some kind of a stamp. Um, even with Safety Act on the physical security side, you know, I don't think anybody's saying it's going to be breach proof or it's going to prevent, in the case of the Safety Act, it's going to prevent a terror attack. But in limiting the liability there, you have some stamp that says they did everything that could be reasonably expected to protect this element uh, from such a, such a risk, um, you know, that one could reasonably expect uh, we have to limit that kind of a liability. Like you said, I think right now there is no stamp, you know, in terms of who's saying, yeah, you guys are doing, you know, what you should be doing in this medical field, the way maybe things are happening in banking. Uh, and you're right. That's been a huge challenge for well, banks, you know, trying to, to to keep all of that stuff still, legislation yeah. and still be profitable is a very difficult thing. Well, I, and still I hate banks, to break in, in terms of money. Dan, Dan oh, if you'll give me just a moment, please, sir. I'm yeah. sorry I interrupted you. We did hit the top of the hour. I know some people only plan for an hour. Um, I'm going to leave it open so that y'all can continue the conversation as as people are still here uh, and and interacting but I did want to at least give those uh, the opportunity to know that we do respect their time. We appreciate that you attended. We appreciate our panelists. Our next CISO Live event is going to address PCI, which will also bring probably PII into it as well. Um, so be looking for the invitation for our next CISO Live. And with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to Dan to complete uh, the conversation. But again, I do appreciate everyone's attendance. Uh -huh. Uh, thanks, Todd. And, you know, James has a good point. I think if you think big picture, you know, the example I was thinking of is uh, someone's money being stolen from a bank, right? Kind of like our data being stolen from who we, we protect it with. Banks still leverage a key risk treatment option, insurance. And, um, and so, and maybe, I think that's maybe a better measure in terms of cybersecurity, in terms of risk treatment, to protect the consumer, to protect patients, customers. Um, maybe we, we figure out how to enforce or create um, that instrument for organizations that, that have, uh, in, have really sensitive data. Because I think just trying to ramp up more cybersecurity rules and legislations and frameworks, I don't know that it's going to work. Like I said, that at the end of the day, a bad guy with a firearm walks into a bank they steal the money. It doesn't matter what the law says, right? And so, um, but they're all the customers, all the bank customers are protected. And so I, maybe there's some way we, we force the, that a little bit more where there's that, that risk treatment option in the future. It's a great point. You know, the, the frameworks are there. And I think as Dasha said, a lot of it's basic stuff. Um, you know, the frameworks are there. They just need to, I think, ensuring that people are using them and they're doing that consistently is, uh, is, a, is a great way forward. I, I did a series of presentations for the uh, North Carolina Bar Association and I based it on the American Bar Association guidance for legal practices. And to summarize their guidance, it's go be pretty good at security and then buy a lot of insurance. That's the American Bar Association guidance to, to legal practices. Uh, Dan's spot on, insurance is, is, is certainly one way to manage risk. and. Uh, it should be accounted for in everyone's planning.
Well, to some extent, but if the cybersecurity insurance, and especially if you subscribe to it, they have the fine print in there. You have to be doing the right thing. You have to have basic security in place. You have to show that at the point of breach, you are doing the best, you are using best practices in your operations. And that's also one of those things is, and not to bash insurances, but you know, you, you will be the one having to prove that you've done the right thing. And, and not, nothing gets healthcare industry, but anywhere really, how many companies are really in the position to show that at that point in time when we had a breach, we were really doing everything, we were monitoring everything, we had all the logs, we had all people, everybody was trained, everybody knew the processes, never ever will you be there. So yes, there's a combination between follow the rules, follow the best practices, have cybersecurity insurance, but at the same point, it's a chicken and egg. You have to have the basic hygiene, the basic compliance security in place in order to get cybersecurity insurance and to get something out of it if you get breached. It's a great point, Dasha, right? Because the insurance company sure as hell don't want to pay out when the time comes. They got a business to run to. Um, exactly. They're going to put you up against everything that you did. Uh, did you do everything yeah. you're supposed to do? Exactly. Well, and if you've been... Go ahead. If you've ever sat in on one of those calls with an underwriter, or, or well, my last call, there were nine underwriters on the call listening to me walk through everything. It is, it is a challenge. Um, as, as Dasha and James are saying, that it's not a, it's not an easy bar, and they, they get into uh, some weeds in some areas you just don't expect. You'd be, you're, you're surprised that they do. So. Um, it is a, it is a much, a much bigger deal. It's not, it's not just a simple questionnaire anymore. If you're a, if you're a pretty large organization. I believe right now it's easier to pass a PCI level one assessment and get that certification and the rock than it is to show the proof to a, as a big company to a cybersecurity insurance that you've done everything right. That, that's my opinion, what I've seen. Um, and especially for looking at the, the companies that probably will be breached the easiest because which are the small and medium-sized businesses because they are connected to the bigger companies and they're the weakest link in the whole equation so they're going to be the first attack uh, first uh, first attack point and they certainly when it comes to documentation log monitoring incident response all of that I mean, I, th I think the uh, Verizon report or even FBI has, uh, I think 70% or something really high number of companies are not even aware that they have been breached unless until somebody identifies or informs them. And it usually, I think average time is about 18 months or something within months before companies realize that they have been breached. So, you know, statistics, um, they speak one thing. The reality is how you're going to actually put that into play and be able to convince an insurance that you've done everything right. So it's a tough, uh, tough world, but uh, challenging and a lot of fun. <laughs>